I'm not in my basement this time around. I'm in a London flat. True fact. That's what they call apartments here. It's on a busy road, so you may hear a bus or two go by. It's raining a bit, too. I'm over here doing shows, but people got asleep, including you. So I'm putting this episode together from abroad. If you're listening, Mr. Rick Steves, please don't break my thumbs. It's just this once, and I don't want to encroach on your thing. It has been a little scary to figure out the episode while traveling. However, knowing that Juliana Barwick is doing the music makes me feel all right. Even if I just went out and recorded The Drunkest Man in Britain, her score would still make it a beautiful experience. Honestly, not the worst idea I've had. I've been told he is in Newcastle. I was inspired by my first time in Ireland last week and thought it'd be nice to set this episode there. Give you an audio tour of some places I visited like St. Stephen's Green. St. Stephen's Green is a rectangular park in the center of Dublin that lives up to its name. Very green. Perhaps you can faintly hear the park's two fountains as well. During the Easter Uprising in 1916, a battle was fought here by soldiers of the newly declared Irish Republic against the British. But now, it's just a lovely place to eat lunch on a weekday. Apparently, there are still bullet marks in the arch by the park's entrance. Many monuments here commemorate their struggle for independence, too. One thing I have noticed is that both Irish and British are crazy for Pret-a-Manger. They go nuts for pre-wrapped sandwiches. So I was sitting on the bench with my recorder, watching people eat their bread and feeling good. Looking back, I think my week in Ireland was colored by two main things. The first was rain. It felt like I had been wet since I arrived. I'm not complaining. One day, I even took a three-hour bus tour to the cliffs of Moher to get more wet. was lovely, but I bet you're disappointed to hear that she's got an American accent too. She was very hardworking and even played Princess Bride on the bus TVs for our ride back to Dublin. But if we're going to learn about Ireland, who want to learn about it with Brogue, right? I want an Irish person to explain the cliffs to me and only understand half of what they're saying. 
it's still a better understanding in a way. Cliffs of Moher are five miles long and rise up to 702 feet above the Atlantic Ocean on Ireland's west coast. They are home to over 20 different species of seabirds, including razorbills, kittiwakes, peregrines, and everyone's favorite, puffins. I was surprised birds want to live there at all because the wind and rain was like none I had ever experienced. We decided to use Juliana's majestic score instead of my recording, because here's what it sounded like on the day I was there. I'm not exaggerating when I say people were getting blown over. Almost as soon as I got off the bus, my favorite hat was blown off my head and was carried so far into a bog I couldn't find it. Don't worry, I got a new one at a thrift shop in Belfast. We went out, got soaked, and then got back on the bus. If you want to see the world, I guess you gotta be willing to get wet. Here's some chatter from inside John Fallon's pub at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, established 1619. I picked up a newspaper and was reading about the second thing that colored my visit to Ireland, a simultaneous visit by another Joe, President Biden, and it was all anyone was talking about. I'd walk by some newspapers and the front page would read, Welcome home, Cousin Joe. And I'd say, thanks. Ha 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 ha. Kinda gets lonely while traveling alone. I was actually approached by the Secret Service while there. They said, we've got to talk. And they told me that President Biden loves this podcast. That is why he's so sleepy and why I've got to stop. Fortunately, fellas, I said, I've got a responsibility to my Patreon subscribers. Sorry, sorry. But we do have a special guest at the end. Is it uh, President Joe? Stay tuned to find out. The pubs in Dublin live up to their reputation, and the beer is good. I like how some don't play any music either. But one thing that amused me is that the conversations I was hearing sounded like ones I could hear anywhere. 
Dublin is an international city and I don't know what I was expecting. People arguing about the line in the each poem or something, but one evening I was out and a guy on one side of me was asking his friend if he had seen the new succession. And on the other, a girl was sharing with her friend about a guy who wouldn't commit. She reminded me that since it's springtime, people are out there looking for love. And I asked my Norwegian friend, Daniel Simonson, to share some advice in case that includes you. For people hoping to fall in love this spring, what advice would you give? I think just every day you should say to yourself, I'm not looking for love. And then, you know, it would just magically appear. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all about trying to not be too desperate, you know. If you find someone you like, you can't show it too much. You've got to hide how special you think they are. Do you have any techniques for that, for hiding? Uh, just be very emotionally shut off. Yeah, don't share too much, at least not in the beginning, I think. Sometimes, you know, if if you like someone too much, they almost like you less than if it seems like you don't like them so much. Yeah. It's a very strange uh, game, the whole game of love. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I mean, what's your advice so far is to uh, tell yourself that you're not looking for love. And then when you find it, don't show it. Yeah. So it's almost like you constantly have to work against your own instincts and put a lid on all those feelings, you know. So someone is hoping to find romance this spring they should put a lid on it. Yeah, it should be their least priority. What, what would be their top priority then? Mm, money, you know, capitalism. And Instagram likes too. That should be on the top. Do you think that spring is a, a better season than others to fall in love? Oh, yes. It's the best isn't it? Because it's not too warm or not too cold. So people are like physically comfortable. Yeah. Also, I think people feel hope in spring. There's a lot of hope. People are like, I'm gonna change. I'm gonna, you know, this is my year or whatever. And that's a good time to snatch someone. Thank you. Romantic advice just feels more authentic coming from a Norwegian. There seem to be some people on dates in the green, as well as at the National Gallery, which houses some of Ireland's finest art. Fortunately, the Irish wing had been blocked off for Joe Biden's visit. So what you are hearing is me sitting on a bench with my recorder pointed towards a very large painting titled Visit of Queen Sheba to King Solomon, painted by Lavinia Fontana from Bologna in 1599. What do you think? 
I'm not sure I completely agree with Daniel's advice, but do feel that if you are hoping for something, it does help to put it out there. For instance, I mentioned online that I was hoping to interview some older Irishmen while here, and the next day I received a message saying, if you are interested in old Irishmen, you gotta talk to my dad, and then included a photo of his father, Dr. Art Hughes, with a giant mustache, so I said, for sure. Art's son, Oishin, told me that Art is a professor of Irish language and culture and has been working on a language almanac of Ireland and its surrounding islands for the past 40 years, making recordings such as these. Here's a greeting from Erinmore Island off the coast of County Donegal. Here's a greeting from Lewis Island off Scotland. One more time. We met up in the theater before my show in Belfast, and I'm so glad we did. Fatima's the opera, you You want to uh, talk for a sec? Okay, too sure. I mean, <clears throat> you know, from Belfast, In addition to Art's notable mustache, he's built like a retired NFL player but is actually a former hurling player. A tough Irish sport seemed to me like a cross between rugby, lacrosse, and cricket. I don't know how to describe it, but they use a rubber ball that's extremely hard and whack each other with wooden sticks, so all these guys have strong heads to absorb the blows. I'm here with uh, Dr. Art Hughes, an expert in Irish language and culture, and I guess maybe we start from the beginning. You traveled for 40 years making a language atlas. Yes. Now, in Belfast, we were very lucky to have a professor there called Heinrich Wagner, who came from Switzerland. And Wagner conducted an Irish dialect atlas. He went round uh, 87 places in Ireland and the Isle of Man and eight places in Scotland. They asked, 88, 90 people. How do you say in your Gaelic, you know, uh, the hen is at the gate, you know. The, he went to the market yesterday. So uh, now what he did was he wrote these answers down in a phonetic script. Sadly, he didn't record them. So I then drew up this questionnaire of 421 questions. But rather than focus on single words, it's like a phrasal atlas. And what I did was I went around recording an old cassettes family holidays, I'd take my wife and little daughter Anna, they'd go into a, I'd be back in five minutes, I would spend two hours <laughs> recording. But um, basically, I'm now going to have 100 Gaelic speakers from Gaelic-speaking Munster, Connacht, Ulster, and then the Scottish Highlands and Islands. So it's basically going to be a project with 420,000 live responses, with maybe two or three thousand footnotes. So this will be a massive spoken archive that will be free of access to people who want to, you know, access the the, the various dialects and, and, you know, every nook and cranny basically I've been to. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there are very few people in this world who have written linguistic atlases. But, you know, hopefully I'm going to be one, Joe. 
it's an amazing goal. Yeah, yeah. And people are usually pretty excited to talk to you. You see, I think when you address them in Gaelic right away, it's like an internal passport. So there's a trust thing, you know, when you... I feel very lucky and privileged to be able to... People to bring me into their houses and talk, and then they would give me food and stuff, you know. So it's, it's a very... Um, on, on the human front, it's been a wonderful experience that way, Joe. Yeah. Table and food, drink, be it alcoholic or non-alcoholic, tea, people sitting around, Joe, talking like this. I think, you see... I know people want, you know, movies with, like, FBI agents and car chases and stuff like that, but a lot of people out there, your listeners, Joe, they want to just have a, a fairly quiet time, uh, slow it all down, and listen to people speak about what, what makes them tick. And I think that, um, that these platforms are crucial for us as a species to slow it all down and spend a little while listening, relaxing, and just calming things, Joe. I, I mean, that's kind of my thing. What makes Irish language so special? Well, I think, Joe, that um, every uh, culture, every landscape has uh, a rapport with language, for example. With the, the Gaelic language, you're talking about a rural language, really. And this rural language, a lot of the landscape, Joe, is in, in Gaelic. For example, Sleeve's a mountain. Moor is small, big as uh, is a townland. Inver's an inlet. Uh, Crook is a hill. Carrick is a rock. Shrach is a, uh, a pasture by a meadow. So you have a lot of the landscape is of Gaelic origin. And the landscape have got this Gaelic uh, background to them. So, if you like, the landscape will speak maybe to the Gaelic speaker more than it will to, you know, the um, uh, English speaker. Because there is a, there's a connection, or there's a deep rapport between how places are named and then, you know, the uh, native language. Yeah. I, f- I felt the power of the landscape I went to the Cliffs of Moher on uh, Wednesday and the wind was blowing people over. It was yes. pretty... Hopefully pretty... landside, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody went off the cliffs, but I did see a few people go straight down to their butts. Yes, yes. No, I mean, um, the western seaboard, it is dramatic, Joe. There's no question about that. So what would you say to uh, my listeners who think uh, everyone should either speak English or Chinese? Well, I would say that a lot of people live their life in one language. But that's quite a recent thing, Joe. And a lot of people are bilingual, and it's proven that the children are exposed to more languages, that it's great for their intellect, it's great for their mind. So I would say that people, you know, spend so much time behind the wheel or walking about the place. Learn a new language for your life, uh, for your health, your mental health, your well-being. The biggest computer in the world is between our ears and below our scalp, Joe. Nothing beats the human mind. But we need to look after the human mind. And one way to do that, new language. And, oh, I can't learn languages. Rubbish. Give it a go. Don't worry about it. Tune in to a bit of radio, 10, 20 minutes a day, five days a week. And give yourself six months. And you'll find 
you'll be getting used to the rhythms of the language, you'll recognise more and more. Language learning and language journeys are great for mental health and well-being. I would say to anyone who hasn't tried it, to start tomorrow and do it. I don't want to put you on the spot, but is there a, a poem or a, a paragraph from a, a, a section of a book that really you find is uh, calming or particularly beautiful to share with the listeners as they fall asleep? Well, I translated this book called The Big Drum. I'm sure as a drummer more. But Shostakovich, he was like a, almost like a philosopher. But there's an old proverb that says, truth is bitter. But he said, they say the truth is bitter, but believe me, it's not bitter, it's harsh. And that's the very reason why we avoid it. Jershid gwilin yirin yasharu, a kred mishe, ni sharavatashi, a garu, a gashinin fa a shahandari. Wow. That's great. Thank you so much. Cool. Dude, All right. Good to talk to you, Joe. Yes, same. Let's, um, yeah, maybe we can do continue over beers or something. We talked for 45 minutes before the show. I could have kept listening to art all evening. In my past year of touring, I got to see more places than I ever had before. There's a lot to say about place. I'm hoping to do a full exploration of it in my film Postcard Men if I am able to secure $300 million to make it. The previous budget was $250,000. But then I saw Avatar Waterworld and decided it should have one of those digital whales. But right now, I'm getting kind of tired too. So I'll just say that it was a joy to speak with Dr. Hughes, who is so passionate about where he's from, its history, and is willing to share that passion. It was the type of conversation you hope to have while traveling, and I hope you appreciated it too. And I hope you're in a warm, dry bed, nearly asleep, but determined to wake up tomorrow and learn another language. Good night. Juliana Barwick. Sound and additional music by Ryan Dan. Produced by Grant Farsi for Chestnut Walnut. Special thanks to Dr. Art Hughes, as well as his son, Oishan Hughes, and friend, Barra Doherty, who were kind enough to record our conversation, as well as drink Guinness with me after the show. I gotta say, thanks to the fun audiences in Dublin and Belfast, and to the Irish comedian Maeve Higgins for her travel tips, who I hope to have on here soon. Finally, thanks to all the patrons who make this show possible, like Lloyd S., Brian T., and Gavin W. Bush. Just kidding, just Gavin W.